What, which, this, that, or the other? From Bonnaroo to Coachella, traversing the music festival landscape can be tricky. That's where we come in with high fives for everyone. The What Podcast with Brad, Barry, Lord Taco, dedicated to exploring the entire festival scene. Brad has worked in the radio industry for more than 20 years and currently lives in Brooklyn, where he is program director for three stations, including one in New York, one in Detroit, and one in Miami. Barry's been a reporter for the Chattanooga Times Free Press, covering all aspects of the entertainment industry since 1987. That's before you were born. Lord Taco, the smart guy who makes these podcasts on our website at thewhatpodcast.com work. Also really good at identifying babies, loves blue-haired moms, PBR, and his beautiful Volkswagen bus. We all fell in love with the Bonnaroo Festival years ago, not only because of the amazing bands that play there every year, but also because of the incredible community spirit that has developed around it. Radiate positivity. And we really like talking about the inside baseball stuff when it comes to putting on a huge music festival. So join us. You can hear the What Podcast on the Consequence Podcast Network or anywhere you find your favorite podcasts. Consequence Podcast Network. Welcome to Going There, the crossroads where music and mental health meet. Presented by the Consequence Podcast Network and Sound Mind Live, this series is made possible by the fine folks at Janssen Pharmaceutical Companies of Johnson & Johnson. On the first episode of this podcast series, I have the absolute pleasure of interviewing singer, musician, songwriter, entrepreneur, Shamir. Listening to Shamir's music is a revelation. It's not only the sheer quality of his music and vocal performance, but the diversity of styles and sounds that he brings to his music that absolutely blew me away. I cannot help but think of some of the greatest artists and bands I've heard over my lifetime, including Miles Davis, Prince, Talk Talk, and Andre 3000. And yet, as much as I was impressed by Shamir's music, I was even more impressed by his willingness to step up as a mental health advocate and share his story of struggling with bipolar disorder. Now, on the Going There podcast, we talk with musicians who struggle with their mental health just like us. And we have in-depth conversations asking the tough questions so we can learn from each other about what it means to cope with mental illness. Our goal is to shine a light on the incredibly difficult topic of mental illness so we can all come out of the darkness, put an end to the stigma, and get the care we need. And bipolar disorder can be a very difficult condition to live with and manage. People with bipolar disorder experience manic episodes in which they may feel overly energetic, angry, agitated, or out of control for extended periods of time. They may find themselves hardly sleeping or engaging in unsafe, impulsive behaviors like excessive drinking or drug use. And sometimes, people even have psychotic episodes where they lose connection with reality, often winding up hospitalized. People with bipolar may also experience intense depressive episodes where they're sad, have a lack of enjoyment in their life, low energy, poor concentration, and even feel suicidal. And so, for many people and their loved ones, bipolar is a frightening illness which is why it has been extremely inspiring and important that Shamir has been so willing to share his story of living with bipolar disorder to help others feel less alone and frightened as they cope. And so we're going to talk with Shamir about how he experiences bipolar disorder, the factors that may cause or worsen his symptoms, and the skills he's developed to cope. So let's go there and hear more from Shamir. All right, so Shamir, welcome to Going There. Hi. <laughs> so let's get right into it. Um, you know, we talked obviously a little bit before this, and we talked about the fact that you have struggled with bipolar disorder mm -hmm. during the course of your life. And that is something that not everyone is familiar with. So I thought what we could do is just start off with what is bipolar disorder and how have you experienced bipolar in your life? So bipolar disorder is, is basically a chemical imbalance. Um, and, you know, it looks different and like presents itself in like different ways and different people. But basically, um, you kind of have very like, you know, polar like moods and not in the way that 
unfortunately it seems to like be depicted like in media where it's like oh you feel this way one second and you feel this way for another second it's actually quite the opposite it's actually you spend really long periods feeling one way and and another really long period feeling another way and generally like it's um a really long like maybe like depressive episode or a really long like manic episode but generally it usually is um kind of like uh at least for me and um kind of like the classic case is that uh you know you go through really long periods of uh depression and then kind of like when you get out of the depression um it's not always just you're in the clear or you're out of, or you're just like not depressed anymore it can be mania which then um is just basically like a whole 180 and um and it's kind of like categorized as like scattered brain, a little more like hyper, um, mind racing, <laughs> mind racing, you know, uh, it's hard to kind of like explain mania. It's almost kind of like you're on like maybe some kind of drug that's like an upper, but like you're not on anything. And I remember the first time I had like a, a, a I guess, noticeably bad, um, manic episode like my friends thought that I was on drugs I was completely sober I had done nothing um and so yeah it's 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 basically you know not necessarily how it's depicted you know you feel one way one second another way another second it's just like long periods of kind of like feeling both sides of those moods and and one of the things that you're talking about is how when you have a mood disorder, oftentimes it just feels like you're stuck. Like, you know, like you, like almost like some people describe it, like you're wrapped in a blanket and your mood just cannot deviate from that perspective. You know, so many of us. I explained it. I'm sorry not to cut you off, but I explained it to my friend this way. um, The last kind of like really bad manic episode I had last fall, uh, while I was kind of in the midst of it as well, um, as like it feels like I like a, a, a method method actor, um, and like can't get out of character basically, and like even there would be times where like I'm fully aware, kind of like my subconscious that like I'm having an episode, but I can't do anything about it. It's like I'm like trapped in my own body sometimes. It's like it's really crazy and like scary a lot of the times as well yeah and that trapped in your own body feeling as you said it's so frightening and i think what's very difficult for people to understand is that most of us rely on the idea that we have mood variability Mm -hmm. you know that essentially in the course of a day in the course of an hour in the course of a few minutes we can respond differently to different things emotionally Mm -hmm. and and how helpless and difficult it feels when you just can't move from where you are emotionally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I think I've noticed that with a lot of my other bipolar friends because we've kind of had that feeling of like not being able to like be in control of like our overall moods like that we've learned to really be in control of like our day-to-day and like moment-to-moment moods. Like I would say more than like the average person Um, because once you're triggered and if you are triggered, you know, by something and you're feeling something very viscerally, it's harder for us to come out of that, you know? Um, So I think if anything, kind of like my diagnosis have taught me to be more tempered because, you know, I don't want to be triggered, basically. <laughs> now, one of the things when you're talking about being triggered, because uh, you mentioned uh, both the manic and the depressive phases, one of the things that's unfortunate with both of those terms is that they're unfortunately used colloquially to mean something different. So even, you know, we were talking beforehand about 80s music, like the term maniac is often used Mm -hmm. by people as kind of a good thing, like you're up, you're powerful, you're energized. And and that is for some people how they feel to a degree. But but mania can really manifest in a very different way. And I'm kind of curious just for you, 
you know, how that has, you know, what your manic episodes have been like? Well, you know, I think for me, for both mania and depression, now that I have a diagnosis and I think there's so much power in diagnosis because of this, I've learned for me that the only way that you can, the only thing that you can do is uh, write them out in the healthiest and best way that you can, in the safest way that you can. Um, Yeah. And that's all you can really do realistically. I mean, um, and, and so, you know, when I had my first like really bad manic episode, I didn't know what was going on and I was scared and I didn't have like the tools to like, now when I'm manic, I'll like get some work done (laughs) or like, you know, or find ways to like calm myself down with like a bath or like I'll read or like, you know do anything to get my mind from like racing and like calm myself down but like before I didn't know what I was feeling so I just kind of like went with it or like you know what I mean like I I I wasn't aware of what's going on with me so I just kind of like went with it but also was kind of like scared and like being in this middle ground of like going with it but also fighting against it and then that manifested more and it made the mania you know worse and then Eventually, um, it I it basically pushed me to uh, psychosis, which is um, which is not rare. Basically, like um, from mania can lead to uh, psychosis, and um, and that's basically what happened to me the first time I uh, before I was diagnosed, basically. Um, but I don't uh, mania is never led to a psychosis since then because like now you know just like I said I have like the tools to like calm myself down and kind of like cope and like everything yeah yeah and you know one of the things that you're describing is the psychotic features that can accompany a manic episode you Mm -hmm. know where people feel disconnected from reality Mm -hmm. and unfortunately a lot of people discover for the first time that they're bipolar because they get that disconnect and they wind up in the hospital. Mm-hmm. And you, you've you talked publicly uh, about having wound up in a psychiatric hospital. I'm just kind of curious if, if you feel comfortable talking about what that was like and, uh, you know, what just the whole experience was in terms of like recognizing, like, whoa, there's something going on here. Yeah, well, um, I mean, I was severely triggered I was going through a very very hard time um it all kind of um accumulated after just uh feeling uh frustration in my music career and um and having come off of you know some of the biggest tours non-stop I basically toured two years non-stop and was fatigued and unhealthy and was living in a new city I just moved to Philadelphia for the first time which I like love um but I was just feeling very like a fish out of water while also still trying to take uh I guess ownership over my career because I felt like over the beginning two years I was uh basically playing a character and was like not feeling fulfilled as a music artist I was like it was starting to basically not be fun you know I was like I'd rather work a nine to five if you know the music industry is like this so I was really frustrated and basically um that's when I guess the mania first started to show his head I was very depressed I was feeling um hopeless basically and then um and then over a weekend when I had like one of the biggest fights with one of the uh, producers that I was working with at the time um, I went back home and like locked myself in my room and um, and and that's when the the mania started and I <laughs> recorded an entire um, album over that weekend and released it that Monday and um and then, you know, it was 
received well, <laughs> shockingly. And um, and that kind of really exacerbated the um, mania, um, unfortunately, even though it was all positive stuff. And then I was just zooming for the next two weeks, basically, until I found myself just having just a full-blown episode, like on the phone with my friends. They, um, you know, had to like send someone to my house. Um, I, I, it's also blurry during that time. Like for the most part, I just kind of like remember kind of like freaking out. And like the next thing I know, I like woken up in like the hospital. Um, but I remember there was one point where I was in the hospital um, where I was like full on like handcuffed to the bed, like full on having just like a full freak out episode um, where the police uh, came in and was asking um, me questions. And one of them was uh, if I was on wet, which I didn't even know what that was. Um, at the time. Um, and it was one of the few things that I remembered because when I came to, I asked my mom, I was like, what is wet? Like, <laughs> that's just like the last thing I remember. Like, that's what they kept asking. Um, but now, you know, now knowing what it is, PCP, um, it makes sense that they would have asked that, you know? Um, it's, you know, just like I said earlier, it's just very, very reminiscent of um, like being like on drugs, basically. Um, because it's like the, the, you know, the chemicals in your brain are like releasing those kind of like endorphins or like whatever that maybe a drug would, you know, so, yeah. It, it sounds so scary. I mean, just yeah. any, any time you're having to interact with, with police officers, it can be mm-hmm. a scary situation, but Especially when you don't even, person. well, and, it, and yeah, and I want to talk about when we're talking about like kind of what tends to trigger, um, different episodes you know the stress of something like racism is something i definitely mm-hmm. think we should we should pivot towards but just the the not even knowing what what like what am i doing here i mean there's so mm-hmm. much that you have to try to catch up on mm-hmm. in that one moment and the pressure of if, if i get this wrong like what if i what if i don't understand what the term wet is and i just say oh oh yeah mm-hmm. because i'm out of it and then all of a sudden it's like okay that's a whole nother set of issues and um it just again it, i think it speaks to just how difficult it can be when you have something like bipolar mm-hmm. yeah i yeah i mean it i feel you know i feel like my life basically are like in two parts like before my psychotic episode and after because i've never blacked out like i just never done that I've never uh not like you know induced from like drugs or alcohol or like anything I have the memory of like an elephant um so to me to have a, a point in my life you know be it that you know short you know maybe even less than 24 hours to be just like a complete blind spot for me um it's scary to me it's really scary to me. And it's something that I don't ever want to experience again. And I'm blessed that I haven't experienced again. And also not guaranteed and don't know if I ever will experience it again. Um, And that's kind of like, you know, the downside of it. But um, also it's enough of of a motivation to stay balanced and, you know, stay as healthy as I can, as well as possibly can. You know, in, in thinking about the, the things that might trigger um, uh, an episode, one of the things that, that I find very fascinating that you said was even when the press was good, it was stressful. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I think is so tough about struggling with a mental health issue is that it, you're, you're, depression or your mania doesn't necessarily respond in kind to what's happening. Stress is stress. Mm -hmm. So in other words, like if you have something that's stressful, it's just going to build up. And at some point, something's going to get triggered. It's not necessarily like you're sitting there and being like, well, I evaluate this 
feedback as X and therefore I'm going to feel manic about it or I evaluate it as Y and therefore I'm going to feel depressed about it. It can sometimes feel like this, this, this ongoing overwhelming feeling that at some point people just pop. Um, and I'm kind of curious from your perspective, as you were building up to that manic episode, what were the different stressors that you were going through and how do you feel like that impacted? Well, so as I said, I was, I, I wasn't talking to my close collaborator at that time. Um, I was removing myself from everyone. Um, a lot of those people probably for the best because um, they were the ones that were triggering me. Um, but I probably wouldn't have been able to get the help that I got or like thing, like I wouldn't have gotten the help that I needed as safely as I did um, from that initial episode if it wasn't for the fact that my best friend since eighth grade actually visited me during that week that I was like super manic and she noticed the change in me. Um, There's multiple times where she knew something was up. I didn't really know, but she was looking at me, not how she ever has basically in our entire friendship. And she was actually the one um, who told my, because my mom had, hadn't been to Philly yet at this point, so she didn't know any of my local friends. And she was actually the one who rang an alarm to my mom to come out in Philly um, during my episode um, because, you know, she was just like, I was already worried when I was like visiting him. And then like, he was sending me like weird messages. Um, and then that's when my mom got like in touch with everyone in Philly and everything. So yeah, I would say that was one of, the first signs like I felt okay like I felt I felt different but again we mania kind of also uh appears to kind of feel like strength or like um you know um like you just have like a lot of energy like I just felt like I had a bunch of newfound energy like at the beginning you know kind of like felt good it felt euphoric I guess I should say which is also another symptom of it like it feels euphoric basically and um but oh even though I felt that way everyone around me looked super concerned and then that was also I think another trigger you know it felt that was frustrating to me because I'm like I feel good <laughs> you know and everyone's just like what is going on so yeah it, it's interesting what you're talking about because you know, one of the reasons why when I work with people, I try to at least once meet their significant other or close mm -hmm. friend, just someone who can give me some basic understanding of, of how this person is in the world. Because what you're describing is, is so common, unfortunately. It's like, we're going about our day. We feel like we're okay. And then all of a sudden it's like, why is everyone telling me I'm not? Why do they seem yeah. scared? And that is, that is frightening to have that disconnect, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I, one, I would say at least 50% of, um, of, you know, my path to mental health and, um, and staying healthy and staying balanced is, being blessed enough to have a really close, I think that is the best thing any mentally ill person can have is a close circle of people that they trust and know deep, deep, deep down that they understand them on a complete and molecular level. I'm blessed enough to have had the same best friend since middle school um, and a close family. And, um, and I think my heart truly goes out to the mentally ill people who don't have that because a lot of them don't, because a lot of them, you know, burn bridges because of, you know, episodes they might've had um, with people who don't, didn't know the real them, you know, and thought that was just who they were. Um, 
or just people who gave who destigmatized them um, and discounted them altogether. I think that is what makes life as a mentally ill person hard. You know, I there are plenty of more other things in my life that makes my life harder than mental illness. I would say that's like maybe second to last on the list. You know, there's like being black, there's like being queer, you know, there's like working in the music industry, you know. Um, my mental illness has, you know, obviously brought me a lot of pain and like everything, but uh, it in a lot of ways just like made me so blessed and like strengthen a lot of like those close relationships because they have been completely instrumental in me staying healthy. Yeah. And one of the things that you're talking about is obviously, you know, we're, we are not only, as you say, our mental illness, we're in mm. some cases that, like you said, is kind of low on the list of, of concerns. But the other things that you brought up, you know, those, those different potential forms of discrimination can definitely affect our mental well-being. And, and if you're comfortable, you know, maybe just talking about like how the different stressors that you've had in your life along those lines, other stressors, how those impact your, your mental health. Well, I will even say the initial, like, uh, you know, episode that led to my diagnosis could, you know, very thinly, you know, be attributed to racism as well, you know, because like, I'd started off, you know, one way in the music industry, um, you know, being kind of like this young black queer one-dimensional character to a lot of these music people um during that time people liked the music sure but um you know it was 2015 no one knew what a non-binary person were you know I went through so much stuff during those press cycles because like nobody knew what non-binary was no people people used the term and almost if you google like any article about me from like 2015 everyone used the term uh post-gender because like just non-binary or like genderqueer was just not in the vocabulary um and I you know was really kind of like the first you know quote-unquote non-binary pop star like coming into the mainstream and and that was scary, you know, because I was not prepared to kind of like be this activist by proxy, you know, I just wanted to make music, <laughs> you know, um, and so that was also put upon me as well, because I was also doing this type of music that, you know, was historically done by queer Black people. Um, the music was uh you know, pop, modern pop, but there was a lot of uh, influences of house music and um, disco music, which was the type of music and genre that I simply did not do before that record. I basically had did it because it's just like everyone liked it. I had this record deal and I just thought that it just would be not only dumb but maybe even disrespectful of me not to like continue this um like Adele's label just signed me like you know like how can I not you know but in my head you know being young and 19 and naive I'm just like okay I'll like do this record it's my first record so no one would know it no one would care I'll do this to get my foot in the door and then I'll go back to kind of like the music that I normally make and like my roots which is like I was in a punk band before I got signed you know I like country music I like you know I was like the kid in Las Vegas that everyone just saw with the guitar like I couldn't be parted with the guitar and yet you know I've been touring nonstop to electronic music you know dancing on stage what what felt like a monkey to me basically um it wasn't satisfying it wasn't how I viewed myself as an artist, as a person, or like anything. And then I basically felt even more close in the second, the absolute second I decided to start retaliating and 
you know, being wanting to stand up for myself as an artist, people are like, no, you know, like you're black and queer. You should be doing this kind of music, you know? Yeah. And it's, it's, it's amazing. Cause, uh, even though people aren't necessarily hearing it, like right before, you know, even when we were talking and I was starting to go on and gush about your music, even before I said it, you're like, oh my God, are you going to say Prince? And I was like, no, of course I wasn't going to say Prince. Except for I was, but, you know, and, and, and the thing is, is that we, we did just for the record, bring up Talk Talk and we did bring up Tears for Fears, but I think you yeah. brought up Tears for Fears. So, you know, I, I don't get credit for that one. But one of the things that's, that's so difficult, right? And, and when we kind of make a parallel between what are the effects of discrimination mm-hmm. is that even, you know, even if it's meant in some kind of complimentary fashion, mm-hmm. you can feel the walls being put around you. Mm-hmm. I mean, the whole point of being an artist, at least to a certain degree, is, is, to, is to break free of all of those walls, to have no boundaries. I mean, you're, you're out there doing the creative things because we can't. And then when someone comes along and says, well, I see you as X, mm-hmm. even if that X is complimentary. I mean, as we said, like, look, the lineage of the Miles Davis, Prince, Andre 3000. Like who wouldn't want to be compared to Prince? Like he's ex- a genius. Yes, ex- except <laughs> as, but I think, but I think the point that you were just making is it, it's great on one level, but yeah. it's sort of confining if you mm-hmm. have in your heart something different. And that's very similar to what people experience with mood disorders, which is why I think discrimination is such a trigger or even even stereotyping is such a trigger because it's like, man, I feel that I'm, I'm being put in that in that box again. Why? Mm-hmm. I don't I don't want to be here. I want, you know, I want to be able to let my mind go where it goes. That's also the other thing I think that a lot of mentally ill people um, I it, I guess still with and struggle with um, in varying degrees, Um, maybe mine, you know, more so uh, on on a higher level with me, you know, being non-binary and everything. But like, I think, you know, a lot of, a lot of people bipolar and mentally ill people kind of like deal with this kind of um, image distortion that, you know, uh, because of like how you, what you were born, how you were born and what you were born into, um, how you should be. And, um, but not really necessarily feeling, you know, adapt to that. And, um, and, you know, just my last story was like a perfect example. I, you know, I don't even think about how I'm viewed in the world. You know, I just want to do what I want to do. And, um, and I think, Another component to me bettering my mental health is not uh, worrying about my perception to others, basically, or to um, the confines of normality um, that is put on everyone, basically. Um, And yeah, you know, I've always kind of been very just like free flow myself, like, you know, one of the things that always made me stand out was that, you know, I was quirky and unique, like, you know, in high school, like I got best dressed because I wore the quirkiest clothes and not necessarily the nicest clothes, which is why I was shocked that I would even get it. But like people just enjoyed all my quirky and like weird clothing. So, um, yeah, but I think even then, sometimes that people want to confine that, you know, it's just like, oh, because like, that was like the thing, you know, I looked and felt a certain way when I was 19, that I don't feel now and like that I didn't feel by 21. Once I finished that record, you know, like, yeah, I like bright colors and like, you know, zany, quirky things. And I looked this way, and I had the high top and I had the dreads and I did all of that, you know, blah, blah, blah. But like, I, I'm just the type of person I constantly change. I like to constantly change my look. I constantly, you know, change with the weather, basically. Um, and unfortunately, um, especially in the music industry, you know, artists aren't really allowed to grow like that. Artists aren't really allowed to, you know, there's it's very structured in like how they're presented because we are constantly perceived. 
and viewed by you know the masses when but it's frustrating because realistically it should just be about the music you know yeah and it's it's interesting that you say that because I, i've always felt like we have this kind of quasi abusive relationship with our with our rock stars in in a way yeah. because oh, yeah. it's like you know and I, I even the people that we were talking about it's like you know you go along your life, you have this whole process, you do all this different kinds of music, you know, and then there's one thing, you know, like for me, when we were talking about Prince, like, okay, but like there's when doves cry and I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to listen to this song 10,000 times and I'm never going to get tired of it, you know? And so for me, you know, okay, you've just done this great thing for me, but you may want to, you know, like, like Prince, like, okay, I want to go do different things, but there's this natural tendency because I, I love it so much. No, no, no. I, I want, I want you to do that. And, and I, and I've just, in a way by, by going through that process, I've just destroyed the very essence of what got somebody like you or somebody like Prince to, to, to do the song that we love. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I don't know why we do that. And I think you're right. And sometimes in the music business, I mean, because it's, you know, look, it's commerce. Like, oh, you wrote this kind of an album and it really sold. Like, could, could you do that again? Um, it's like, we're not respectful of artists process that get us this great music, you know? But I think it's even harder as well for artists of color and kind of like other artists in the margins, because most of us are only perceived in a very one dimensional way to people as a whole group, you know? Um, So when, you know, you not only want to kind of transcend uh, those boxes that um, people want to put you in, but also sell it back to the people, you know, a lot of companies understandably don't want to take that risk <laughs> you know a risk doesn't go well in a capitalist society you know um but does it make it right no you know and it's kind of frustrating that art at least music is probably the most corporate like corporatized uh art form i will say um because we are seen more as a product than artist and a lot of these companies will gladly tell you that <laughs> to your face, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I would say a lot of musicians don't even feel like artists. I didn't even feel like an artist until I was in a relationship with an artist. And it kind of opened a lot of doors in myself where it's like, oh, I am an artist. I really did not feel like an artist. I felt like a musician. That felt completely not because I just felt like I felt like a machine. I felt like a product, you know, that saying, you know, did not feel like an artist until literally last year. And it's amazing that you're, that you're talking about this and again, getting to the idea of how stressful that must be. But I, I could even imagine, cause I've heard stories at times, you know, you think you would think that, you know, again, a music industry, like you said, it's, it's, it's about art. It's about creativity. You would think that it would be filled with people who want to push creative and personal boundaries. But even as you're talking, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, it's like, God, you know, like, but we as fans, you know, participate in that. Like, you know, I, I, I wonder what it's like, like you're saying, like, you know, somebody like yourself, who's like, you know, a person of color, who's like, maybe like, oh, I'm going to do everything. And now I'm going to do a country song. Mm-hmm. And what is it even like if people aren't cheering as loud for that song you know and like not because they're necessarily intentionally but but we're kind of unwittingly feeding into that racism into that discrimination mm-hmm. by not like sort of being as excited about you doing something different as we are about you know the hits and the hits like you said may have been generated by a machine that was unfortunately you know based at least to some part even if unwittingly in discrimination and that's yeah. a very that's that's a tough thing I would imagine for an artist to contend with. Well, in a lot of my interviews, I've been very vocal about this kind of like personal theory that I have. I mean, you shouldn't, you shouldn't compare black artists or black people to other black people to begin with um, just because they're black. Um, Obviously if it makes sense, but like, but also I just think that 
black artists in general should just stop being compared to Beyonce and like not in a disrespectful way like I think Beyonce is amazing obviously and like ridiculous but it's just like Beyonce's you know uh exceptional you know almost subhuman talent is a result of racism you know she had to be the absolute best to be where she is. And there are plenty of other artists who did not have to do half of the stuff that she had to do to get to where she is. And so when you're placing that standard on every Black artist, that's completely unfair. That is completely unfair. You know, she is, she, she, she she's insane, basically. Um, and like not in she's, any way she's beyonce. she's beyonce you know she's beyonce she's almost like a demigod at this point and for her to have got to the level of success that she did she had to do that and like a lot of other artists that aren't in the margins who have the same level of success as she does did not have to work that hard the proof is in the pudding we can do we can do a side by side and you will see you know and i want to get to a place where black artists don't have to do that just to be successful. And another reason why I'm like kind of, uh, uh, I guess the, the antithesis of that to me um, and why like Rihanna is personally my favorite like major pop artist is because maybe Maybe it just this looks like this from the outside and definitely not going to sit here and act like, you know, Rihanna doesn't work her ass off and like that she isn't like, damn, they're a billionaire and like, you know, has her huge like fashion company and everything. But like, she also always given off this air of like, I don't care and like chillness and she and I've and I've always loved the way that she's navigated her career in just a very chill way, but still was able to garner so much success. And to me, a pop star on her level that's Black, she's the only artist that I can think of that kind of, at the very least on the outside, that's what I'm saying. I don't know what goes on in her inner circle or how hard she actually works, but just like keeps a chill face. But at least from the outside have given off an air of just like, I'm here, I'm talented, people like me, and I do what I do. I can't really think of another Black artist like Rihanna that have done that. Even when you go back to like the 80s, you think of like Prince. You know Prince worked his ass off and it was apparent and you saw it, you know? You know Michael Jackson worked his ass off and it was apparent and you saw it. You saw the sweat. You saw, you know, you saw it all. Um, James Brown. James Brown, you know what I mean? Um, and so I want to kind of like continue the path of just like this effortlessness of a successful black, not even just artist, but person that Rihanna have created. I think it's important. I think it's powerful. And that's why people, when they talk about why is something like representation so important? Mm -hmm. You know, why does it, why does it matter that you're looking on TV or looking in the movies or listening in the radio and you see different flavors of different people? You know, and it's because if you look and, and, and you're saying to yourself, well, I only see one type of black artist represented. I mean, look, is it is it that in and of itself? Again, seeing Beyonce, James Brown, Tina Turner, all these people. But if you feel like but there's only one kind of slice of the pie that is represented it again, it 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 it, it shows that discrimination. And it goes back to that feeling of it's a limit. And it's like, and like, and then why do we do that? And I think it's important that, that you're saying what you're saying, because saying like, I, I want to go out there and I want to represent something different. You know, so if you even think about all of those past artists that you, you know, mentioned, or that we both mentioned, you know, Prince, uh, Michael Jackson, Tina Turner, we all know how much they struggled and suffered. You know, I made the decision, especially after my episode, made the decision that it's not worth it for me. It's not worth it for me. I am not going to risk my life. You know, I'm not going to end up like Michael Jackson, literally not being able to go to sleep unless I have a sleeping pill. You know, um, 
I'm not going to, you know, like it's not worth it. And it's unfortunate because a lot of these black artists literally had to have broken their bodies down just to have the level of success that they've had. Shouldn't be like that. Shouldn't be like that. And, and let's, let's pivot to that concept. Cause you've mentioned just over the course of our talking, a lot of the things that you're doing um, for self-care and, and, and you and I talked about this beforehand, but I, I loved the article you did uh, a few years back on the trying to help people understand when are you doing self-care and when are you doing an indulgence in mm -hmm. terms of managing your health and well-being? Because that is such a core issue that 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 people who I work with face because you sort of want to, you know, I mean, one of it is because part of the stigma of mental illness, like people say, oh, you're depressed, you're just being lazy. Oh, you're manic. Oh, you're just an angry person. It's like that so much of the stigma comes through in like, why don't you just like, you know, get yourself together. But it's also, um, it's so important because it's, it's hard to know. And I, I would love to talk with you about that idea. And then what are the things that you do to, to take care of yourself in that vein? Well, yeah, I think I, I think I mentioned a few of them, you know, I haven't read the article in a while. Um, it's like, what, four years old? Oh my God, time flies. Um, but, been doing uh, a lot. <laughs> been doing a lot. Um, but I, yeah, I think I mentioned just throughout this, throughout this, I, a few things that I wrote about in that, you know, like I, I think when it, one of the things that I mentioned in there is I, um, you know, having close friends to practice self-care with, you know, um, and I think that's also like important as well. Um, I mentioned uh, just getting the whole concept of guilt out you know, that is just the biggest trigger, not only for me, but just like other people that I know that dealt with mental illness and um, bipolar disorder. Now, now let's, let's talk about that. Cause that, that's huge. Tell me yeah. how you understand and manage your guilt, because that is definitely something when I'm working with people that comes up all the time and it's, it's easy for the other people. It's like, Hey, why, why are you feeling guilty? Because you have a health condition, but that, that doesn't, it, it doesn't help necessarily. Like what, what is it that you, that you do to manage those feelings? I'm really bad at journaling. I just started journaling this year. Um, I think it's really important. Um, and, uh, but I think if not journal, at least have like some kind of checklist in your mind of like, why am I feeling guilty? You know, do write it down, do a pros and cons, you know, it, am I feeling guilty, you know, uh, for things out of my hands, you know, am I feeling guilty for, for things that cannot be changed, you know, will the world still turn, <laughs> you know, will I still be able to accomplish what I can accomplish, you know, do that checklist, go through it and, and, but specifically write it down because when you write it down and you see it and you see how it's not conducive, you know, or how it may kind of be a distortion, you know, within your own self. Um, it, it kind of, at least for me, you know, brings it down, you know, because um, a lot of times it is, it's, 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 a, it's a distorted, you know, image and, and concept a lot of the times, like, it's not to say that you shouldn't feel guilt at all. Like there are certain situations where you absolutely, you know, should feel guilty about certain things if you like, you know, uh, did someone wrong or like something. Um, but I've noticed, you know, other mentally ill people and like definitely myself, you know, we, we tend to feel guilt for the smallest things, you know, things that might not even affect, not even just us, but the like next person, but because of stigma and because of like, these concepts of like how we should be working, how we should be functioning in the world might differ, you know, like they're like, I hate like the way that I work and work successfully because I work a lot. I run my label completely by myself. I, you know, self-released all of my record or my last few records, including this recent one. I did all the press photos. I did all the videos. I do all the press photos and art direction and videos for my artists when they need. I produce for my artists. I do all of this. And 
without fail. <laughs> and, um, and I would say, you know, those kind of like how to improve your workflow, you know, type of articles or like whatever and bullet points and everything. Everything that I do is probably like the complete antithesis of that, you know, like one, like one main thing that I saw was just like, never work in bed. I work in bed so fucking much. <laughs> like, are you kidding me? You know? Um, and like, you know, and just like separate certain things, you know, and it's just like, I'm a scatterbrain. And, and, and like, if, if that works for me, then that works for me. You know, like, I think those kind of like constructs, like, I know they're meant to be helpful, but like, everyone is different. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting because I remember, um, uh, I interviewed Sean Colvin a few years back. And one of the things that she said that was so fascinating, because she, she was very open about struggling with depression. And she was just like, I, you know, everyone's talking about, oh, I have these goals and get this done, get that. She's like, I'm having trouble getting from my bed yeah. to the sink, Yeah, you know? And, and, and even with what you're saying, I'm aware of how much those kinds of articles are not taking into account that somebody might be struggling with mental illness. Exactly. Uh, Cause like when I'm having like those episodes and like when I am depressed and like when I'm having the downs, it literally can't make it from my bed to like my seek. I don't see why I can't get work done <laughs> between that, you know, but like these articles are like, you should have work from your bed. Like you should, you know, like I would get nothing done if, if I felt guilty about getting work done while I'm having a depressive episode, you know, um, in a way that feels at least safe for me. God. Yeah. The way you're saying it, it's like, right. Cause one of the things that we say to people is just like, look, like, like look right in front, like what can you do a little bit of this or a little bit of that? And it's like, when you say, no, 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 in order for it to be quote unquote work, you have to get up, you have to mm-hmm. shower, you have to go to an office, you have to have your to-do list. I mean, that's all great if you're not struggling with that works for you. Thing. But if you are, I mean, you just basically explained to me why it is that, that like, I can't work again, yeah. you know? And exactly. it's, that's, <laughs> it's not great. It's not, it's not. It is like, I completely alleviated myself of that guilt, of that kind of guilt, you know? And, and it's made my life way more productive, way more productive than, you know, by non-mentally ill friends in a lot of ways. And um, yeah, it's just, I don't feel guilty, guilty about the symptoms of my mental illness. I just don't anymore. Um, and all I care about is myself and if however I'm coping is healthy or conducive to my continual health. And like, that's really it. Now let's, let's talk about that a little bit if you're comfortable, because there's so many people out there and I'm, I'm, you know, I think the whole goal of this is to, you know, raise people's awareness. So some people I would hope are going to be thinking to themselves, well, you know, I either myself or I have someone I know who struggles with mental illness, you know, what, what would be helpful versus harmful interpersonally. I'm just kind of curious because you've referenced your, your close friends. What kinds of things have people done that have either been like, that was so on point and other things where I was like, Oh God, I wish they hadn't done that. Um, I think I, I think a lot of like my closer friends now um, learn, have learned to like not really kind of um, to like express worry, like maybe when I am struggling, um, I think you just can't like do that. Um, I think it's just like not conducive, you know, I think the best thing when you're dealing with them, anyone who's struggling with that mental illness um or if they're like having an episode or like whatever it's just to just be there and just like you know um express that you're there to help and like be as helpful as um, possible but I've noticed at least in my experience and I think you know a lot of other people can attest that like uh you know understand when you know your close ones you know do feel worried and um and like want to express that but um, at least for me, that also like creates guilt and because it's like, you don't want your close friends to worry, you know, you don't want them to like feel bad because you're feeling bad and then now they're feeling bad. So you feel worse. It is like, it's a, it's a whole cycle. So I think uh, one thing, my, like a kind of like a newer close friend of mine, um, kind of like the last episode that I had, um, you know, it was kind of like the first one that like she kind of like um, experienced and, um, and, you know, felt like a, a lot of worry and like a new level of worry that I think none of like my newer friends or family 
uh, had really expressed probably since, you know, before my diagnosis. And I was just like, listen, like, I have a really close circle, like, and I understand, you know, you feeling worried and like everything and, um, and, you know, can help that. But it's just like, there's like, you know, no need for you to kind of like feel, you know, worried in like that way where you kind of panic yourself, you know? So. Yeah. It's interesting. Cause what you're talking about just feeds right into the literature. You know, there's this, uh, there's this thing called emotional over-involvement and they, they, mm -hmm. they measure it in families. And in theory, it sounds like a nice thing. It's like mm -hmm. when they're upset, I'm upset. They're my whole world. Like I'm nothing without them. You know, these are the things that you want people to kind of feel about you. You know, these are like, oh my God, like, you know, I, I, you know, I, I hope I could be that special to someone. But at the same time, the reason why that characteristic in a family member predicts relapse Mm -hmm. And in, in people who have bipolar or schizophrenia or other conditions, in part because it, it, it's this weight, you know, like, it's like, all right, my mood is already a problem. Now, I, now your mood is bad when my mm -hmm. mood is bad. It's like, oh, it gets back to that stress thing again. And you're, you're talking about it very much how it, how it kind of actively plays out in someone's life. Yeah. I think mental ill people are probably insanely empathetic in a way that's like a lot of times to our detriment so we pick up on those things you know we're very intuitive and um and even when we don't want to we pick up other people's emotions yeah and that's that's one of the things that's so tough you know that, that there's so much research showing that empathy is painful like it really hurts <laughs> to like feel other you. people's yeah. things yeah and, and one of the things also that's so tough, this is so difficult, is that, you know, so much of us walking around in society is based on either real or pretend ignorance. Like, mm -hmm. there's so much stuff that goes on between people that we're just like, all right, let's just, let's just kind of ignore that, you know, like, let's just like move on beyond that. Mm -hmm. um, and what happens a lot of times that certain people, if they're empathic, they're picking up on something that's really happening. Mm -hmm. And when someone says, oh, you're being crazy, they're, they're, it's not because... They're not picking up. They're not saying you're not picking up on something. They're basically saying, I just don't feel like dealing with it. And that is one of the things that leads with sometimes with people with, with mental health issues into this worse cycle, because mm -hmm. you are picking up on things that are happening. Like I can, you know, like I can tell when you're like a bit annoyed with that statement, you want me to just push past that, but I can still pick it up. And now you're telling me that it's not true. And now like my, you know, now that's like, you were talking about that suppression before that's going to make things even worse which is horrible. Well, a perfect antidote, an example of that is, um, I say like two years ago, a now close friend of mine, um, this was kind of like in the beginning of our friendship and um, we had got together for drinks and, you know, was just talking, chilling, catching up. Um, and, um, but I felt, something was off with him um very viscerally and um and I just couldn't shake it but when I asked him if he was okay you know he was like yeah no I'm fine I'm fine I'm fine you know never bulged or like anything but I still felt the energy so heavily that when I went home that day um I literally like was vomiting because I felt like so much residual anxiety from that meeting. Even on the surface, it felt normal, it felt fine, you know. Um, I couldn't, eat, I, it was just the energy. Like, I don't even think there were even like, like she was a good actor. I would think there was like really, you know, telltales, but it's just like, I felt something. And later come to find out a few a few weeks I would say a few weeks or like a month or so later or like whatever um you know during that point in time he was struggling with something and um and basically you know wasn't sure if like you know we were close enough or if, if like you know it was okay to kind of like express those kind of like things to like me and like everything and I was like oh my god like of course and it's just like I wish you did because like you don't understand that made me physically sick you know like because I didn't I didn't tell him like what happened when I went home but I was just like you don't understand like that's 
stayed with me. Like I felt it like so viscerally, like I, you know, I hate to sound like one of those people, like I'm such an empath, but it's just like, I, I really am. And like, it's also one of the main reasons why I can't live in a big, big city. Like I live in Philadelphia, but like, you know, I lived in New York for a second and like, I couldn't do it. I'll be on the train and like, just feel 50,000 different emotions, you know, just knowing cause it's the people around me. Yeah. And it's, it's, one of these things where you're getting back to how you responded when someone was quote unquote worried versus the situation you're talking about with your friend. And, mm -hmm. and a lot of it seems to be, you know, can, can something be acknowledged without then having an emotional tale? <laughs> you know, in other words, like, can, can your, can you say to your friend who asked you about how you were doing, like, yes, like I'm, I'm going through something right now, but you know, that doesn't necessarily mean that because I acknowledge that, that you have to worry, you yeah. know? And in, in the case of your other friend, it's more like he was so worried that he, by not acknowledging it, mm -hmm. it almost was like, it, it led to this reaction. It seems like that sweet spot is being like, okay, let's just make sure we're all on the same page here, but not necessarily so anxious about it, that it, it, it kind of suppresses the whole thing or we want to avoid it. And I also understand, you know, the concept of being leery, you know, of, you know, being too open to people. Um, and I think also, I, you know, also a lot of times you don't want to use people as an emotional dumpster as well. But I think another thing, and then it goes back again, guilt. If someone asks you, that's okay. You know, like if, if someone is genuinely concerned and says, hey, I'm concerned, you know, and whatever you need, however you feel, I am a safe, you know, space for you to say what you feel, take that up. You know, I, that's also something that I've had to work through as well. If someone's taking a genuine concern into like how I'm feeling, it wants to know. I've learned, and even so, I still struggle with it, but I, I've definitely gotten better over the years, but I've learned to like not be modest about that. Like if someone genuinely wants to know, tell them. Yeah, it's so interesting because I, I definitely go through that without however yeah. many years I've been doing this. It's like, I love, I love being there for people. Yeah. And it's almost like you want to say to people, it's like, look, that's like, that's like a, a, a gift in some ways, not only because it's, you know, it's, it's very nice to say that, oh, you feel comfortable talking with me, but it's like, but I actually get to, I get to do something that might be of value to someone I care about. It's like that, you know, those, those are such precious moments. And yet at the same time, man, am I going to hold on to something that's going on for me? I mean, with the exception of my wife, I, like, I don't, I don't know that I want to tell anybody i'm terrified of it and it's so hard because it's so hard to see it from that other perspective you know mm -hmm. yeah yeah i mean it's just you know and, and again i think it's definitely a construct that you know has been built in our society that i think is also just like unhealthy but yeah i've i've tried to get past that and i think i have a lot in a lot of ways successfully um but also you know again it goes back to you know, having that close group, personal, you know, circle that I have. Um, and again, I'm fully aware that that's a privilege and like not everyone, you know, mentally ill or not has that. So. Mm -hmm. So let's uh, take a moment. Did we, did we miss anything? We got into some good stuff. Is anything, I love anything... this conversation. We touched on so much. I know we we, we did uh, did. This is fun. I kind of just keep going because I know <laughs> you could go forever. I mean, you know, I we'll have to, I we'll have, to have a round. We'll have to have a round too. Yeah. Right. I just want to say, you know, I love this stuff. This is, you know, this is very important for me. I love any time I get to speak on it. Um, you know, mental health has just really just in general just become just like a love of mine. Um, and, uh, you know, until I get my psychology degree, you know, anytime I get to do things like this, I feel like, um, I'm able to help in a lot of ways. Um, you know, I have a family history, mental illness, my great grandmother, um, was schizophrenic and, um, struggled with mental illness her whole life, basically. 
Um, so unfortunately, it's hereditary. Um, and I, you know, my aunt um, is now going to school to become a counselor. So Ooh. yeah, so we've talked about a lot of a lot of things, and this is just normal. I talk about a lot of these things just normally, like with her, because she's also just like my best friend in the family. So yeah. I love this stuff. Well, listen, I'm, I'm going to tell you, I know coming from, uh, you know, my side, uh, you know, working in the field, it, it's it's such a big deal when somebody like yourself steps up like you are. Um, you know, the one of the things they teach you when you learn how to be a therapist is go where the affect is, go where the emotion is. Mm-hmm. And the simple fact of the matter is that for a lot of us, the emotion is in our, you know, the music. And mm-hmm. so we just, we gravitate towards it. We, we want to connect with it and we and we so value the artists that make a different in our a difference in our lives and so when somebody like you steps up and and talks about this so openly and and normalizes it and destigmatizes it it has such the potential for for helping people because you know you don't know when there's going to be that kid who's sitting there and they're like i got nothing to hang on to but it's like you know what shamir like like shamir's been through this you know, like maybe I'll go another day. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll, I'll try a little bit. And, and not that many people would have been able to reach that person necessarily. Yeah. So, you know, thank you for, for stepping up. Uh, it, you know, it is enjoy. It's a lot of fun to talk to you, but the, the benefit of it is obviously where there's going to be such payoff. So, um, you know, thanks again for stepping up and being a strong advocate. No, thank you. That's why I do it. So there it is, Shamir talking about living and coping with bipolar disorder. I am so grateful to Shamir for stepping up and talking about this difficult topic. There's so much we can learn from his story. One of the most important things that Shamir discussed was that being in a manic episode felt like being a method actor who couldn't get out of character. This is such an apt metaphor for many people who struggle with mental illness where they don't feel like themselves. They're trapped in a character because their emotions, thoughts, and behaviors feel stuck and unmovable. This can be very difficult, not only because it's emotionally painful, but also because they sometimes lose the connection they've built with the people around them who become scared, disoriented, or even angry when witnessing these behaviors and symptoms of mental illness. Interestingly, when Shamir felt stuck when stereotyped and pigeonholed into one style of music, that feeling of confinement triggered a depressive episode. And it was so impressive that Shamir was able to recognize that the best way for him to cope was by having the freedom to pursue his art by starting his own record label. And he surrounded himself with supportive people who can stay connected to him even when he is experiencing bipolar symptoms. But perhaps the most important thing I got from the conversation was something Chris Bullard of Sound Mind Live said after listening to the interview. He commented on how Shamir's discussion of bipolar was quote-unquote normal. And Chris was absolutely right. This is one of the most powerful ways that we can destigmatize what for many people is a mysterious illness. Talk about it in a matter-of-fact way as we would about other medical conditions that need management. We can learn about the symptoms and treatments so that we can have these constructive, supportive conversations that help us connect with each other rather than stigmatize mental illness. And by doing so, when someone feels trapped in character, as Shamir says, they can be reassured that they are still themselves and maintain connections to the people they love. I want to thank the Consequence Podcast Network and Sound Mind Live for including me in this wonderful project, which is sponsored by Janssen Pharmaceutical Companies of Johnson & Johnson. And thanks to Pete Wilson and the Rooks for letting us use their song, I Know, as our theme music. So be healthy, be safe, and be kind to yourselves and others. See you next time at the crossroads. Consequence Podcast Network.